Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. This past weekend, there was the royal wedding, such as it was, and I will make mention of it just a little bit later in the program. This past Friday, there was another horrific mass murder, attempted mass murder, and it was a mass murder, and it was intended to be an even more monstrous mass murder in terms of casualties, in terms of those murdered and gravely wounded. But the attacker was interrupted and prevented from doing further damage. Now, he was initially interrupted by a school police officer who had previously been with the Houston Police Department, John Barnes. And John, ironically, left the Houston Police Department, joined the school district here for Santa Fe High School so he could spend more time with his family. As it turned out, of course, he was going to be positioned where he could intervene on behalf of many young people who were being slaughtered by another young person whose goal in life was to destroy and who happened to post to his Facebook page a T-shirt that was emblazoned with Born to Kill. A young man bent on destroying others. Good-looking young man. Supposedly, there were no red flags whatsoever, even though he insisted on wearing a black trench coat to school day after day, week after week, irrespective of the exceedingly hot weather that is enjoyed in Texas. I find it fascinating that our school districts and schools, which have control over such things, over what is acceptable clothing and what have you, could not see fit to say, you know, trench coats are out, black trench coats are out. We know the history of the use of these. Okay, directly associated with mass murderous attacks at schools. So wouldn't it make sense to just ban those? No, heavens no. And especially in a place as hot as Texas and Santa Fe, Texas. But no, there were no red flags. If that wasn't a red flag, what is a red flag? 
But Officer Barnes was on duty. And he and another officer arrived early in the process of this mass murder massacre by this active shooter at Santa Fe High School. And he attempted to get into the room where the shooter was, where the murderer was, and he was shot multiple times while opening the door. The other officer then managed to shoot one single solitary round at the so-called suspect. At which point in time, the so-called suspect surrendered. Fascinating. (laughs) What courage, what bravery. Mm -hmm. He's just a monstrous, cowardly murderer, destroyer. And one round is shot at him, not into him, but at him. And he surrenders. Now, why you would only shoot a round at him? Well, perhaps your shooting is less than stellar, and perhaps you think that even though the school is littered with bodies of those dead and dying and gravely wounded, including this officer, that it would be wrong to kill him. I don't know. (laughs) But I find it fascinating that the way these things are reported. Again, he is referred to as a suspect, not as the shooter, not as a murderer, not as a destroyer, not as a slaughterer, not as a massacrer, not as evil, odious, anything else, but as a suspect. He allegedly did these things. I shouldn't place all of the blame for that on our media, print media, and electronic media, radio and TV. I shouldn't place all of the blame on these journalists and would-be journalists and so-called journalists. I shouldn't. Because the blame really lies rooted in our judicial system. Well, Officer Barnes lost massive amounts of blood. He expired twice. He died twice before being resuscitated. Once in the helicopter while being transported to the hospital by life flight. And once while undergoing surgery. And he's currently heavily sedated, and they expect he will probably lose his right arm. Ten people, eight students, two faculty were murdered. Depending on the account you look at, ten people, up to 13 people are wounded. J.J. Watts of the Houston Texans 
National Football League team has committed to pay for all of the expenses for the funerals for the 10 people that were murdered. I was impressed by an official statement from the Houston Texans organization. The last line of the statement concerning this monstrous, evil attack at Santa Fe High School. It says, quote, The Texans family will continue to pray for our neighbors, end quote. It's very, very, very common in our society and in microcosms of our society, such as the NFL, for those who are enormously wealthy to have to set up a foundation. There are reasons to do this, tax advantages. Normally, only a very tiny amount of the great wealth of the people who set up the foundations actually goes into the foundation, and instead they solicit or elicit funds from others to fill the coffers. Indeed, if they pay for too much of the expenses above a certain amount themselves, then they lose their tax-exempt status, which is an interesting curiosity. I know that firsthand. But those who actually give really generously are an extreme, extreme, not only minority, but exception. And yet our society, it heaps excessive praise on these others who, you know, they're giving some pittance, some tuppence to this thing or that thing. Oh, what a great example they're showing. And meanwhile, they are waiting in wealth. Well, J.J. Watts is one of the better ones, one of the good guys. There was an extremely strange story, which I just want to touch on because of the extreme strangeness of it. And I'm going to wrap around and come back to the matter of the violence, of the monstrous violence and how it is addressed by this nation's Justice Department. And before I do that, permit me to digress to this story. People at a Walmart store in Chesterfield County, Virginia, they witnessed something horrific. And a car, a sedan, distinctive seafoam green sedan with Virginia license plates and two different kinds of hubcaps pulled up outside the Walmart. 
And as a man approached the car, not as exited the car, as approached the car and opened one of its doors, a female jumped out of the trunk and fled. And the woman was described as black and between the ages of 15 and 20. Well, this car supposedly contained four men. And I don't know how, it's unclear how many of them were involved in what followed next. But the men pursued the woman or girl and caught her. And she struggled as they forced her through the parking lot and back into the vehicle before they drove away, sped away. Now, there was an alert put out about this at 9 o'clock on Sunday. Now the curious thing takes place. And it was, furthermore, there is video evidence of this, (laughs) all right, of this taking place. But there was a group of four men involved with this. Well, Chesterfield County Police stated that this person, at least they believe it's the same one, emphasis on, you know, they state that it's her, but who's to say that it's really her? A female walked into the Hall Street Police Station on May 21st evening of, after seeing herself on local media outlets, and she was safe and unharmed, and she appeared at the station with one of the men involved in the incident. So seemingly, it's just all fine and good. First of all, (laughs) they're assuming that this woman who comes into the station is the same one. Secondly, they assume that she wasn't brought in under duress, forced in. They're assuming that she is not currently terrorized by them into saying whatever they want her to say. This is an extremely strange situation. I fear greatly that the police will not, will not further investigate it. And will foolishly, blindly, ignorantly, incompetently write it off as just a curiosity. You know, like the police who took the young Asian man back to the residence of that monstrous, sadistic, perverse destroyer. Whatever his first name was, I think it was Jeffrey, I'm not sure, Dahmer or whatever, in Madison, Wisconsin, years ago. Remember that? This fellow escaped. And a couple of police found him. He was naked. He couldn't communicate in English. They took him back to where he escaped from and left him there to be murdered and cannibalized. Not exactly the first time there has been such an incident. Once upon a time, not in ancient history, (laughs) 
There was an incident in Maryland, I believe. I could have been suburbs of Washington, D.C., still within, considered part of Washington, D.C., but I don't believe so. I believe it was officially Maryland. But, such as Bethesda, and there was a family, and the man was a dentist or a doctor, I believe a dentist, and they had a nice home, and they had three daughters, three teenage daughters, one of them might have been 20, they were in their upper, upper teens, so like 20, 19, 18, and a son, at least three daughters, And they had contracted with a local general contractor to do some work on the place. And this general contractor, while he was overseeing it and doing a lot of work himself, he was employing some people who were not citizens of the U.S. of A. From Central America, South America, and such. And the mother and son went to some event or other. The father and daughters were out at various different things. And they came back to the house one by one. And the contractor came back at some point. And there was only one person there, one worker there, whether he was supposed to be there or not. Each time another person came to the house, and this has been pieced together as far as a recreation of the crime, he would accost them with a gun, I believe, and then gag them and bind them two or three of the girls were viciously raped. They were all stabbed more than 50 times each. The contractor was beaten savagely with a claw hammer. The father was murdered. The only reason that His wife and son were spared is that they didn't arrive. But during this timeline, which took quite a while, right? During this time, there was a call to the police to 911 about a disturbance about noise. And a couple police officers arrived. One of them was a woman, as I recall, but I could be mistaken. But that's how I remember it. And they looked around the property And they did not attempt to enter or anything else. And they wrote it off as being nothing. And they left. And they could have prevented multiple monstrously savage, evil murders. But anyway, the murderer was from someplace like Colombia. And he was arrested, and he was tried and convicted, if you can call it that. The surviving wife, mother, and the surviving wife of the contractor, and I can't remember if she had a child or children, 
but they pled for the trial just to be fast-tracked or something to that effect because they couldn't stand to hear what had taken place. So he was sentenced to, you know, a mental institution. And the average length of time for the most heinous murderers that are put in mental institutions, which I've mentioned previously, it's something like 500 days on average. And this was years and years ago. This creature is out and about. He was not an American citizen. We could have just deported him. Wouldn't that have been justice? No, we can put him in a mental institution. Isn't that justice? Now, there is no form of capital punishment known to mankind that was sufficiently torturous for this individual. But the only, only option that had any modicum of justice in it was to summarily execute him and not by injection, whether painless injection or painful injection, not by injection. Hang him, shoot him, stone him. All of those are just terribly, terribly, terribly too good for this utterly evil individual who slaughtered these darling girls, their father, this contractor. But justice in the United States of America, you know, it isn't just that it's been eroding and now it's finally gotten to a fever pitch. This took place decades ago, all right? And the good state of Maryland or Washington, D.C., whichever one it was, they couldn't see fit to execute him. And again, the wife of the contractor and the wife of the dentist, I believe, and the girl's mother. The trial was too much for them. It was too unbelievably, heinously, monstrously horrific to have to suffer through that. I don't blame them for not being able to stomach that and suffer through that. But to allow this monster to be slapped on the wrist and turned loose after X amount of time. The judge has the blood guilt, the monstrous, savage suffering of all of them on his hands. The court does. Our entire judicial system does. The great state of Maryland or government entity, the District of Columbia, have their blood on their hands and have had for decades. And that doesn't go away. The blood cries out for vengeance. 
And when these, like these girls, are not avenged, God testifies that he will exact vengeance. Not on that destroyer, per se, but on society, on the nation which refuses to execute judgment. And when that takes place, at a point in time, after allowing monstrous bloodshed to continue for all the duration here in this wonderful, free, peaceful United States of America, It is felt not just by the evil ones, the destroyers, not just by the corrupt, not just by the profane excuses of leaders, politicians, judges, unjust judges, unjust prosecutors, vile defense attorneys, and the rest. But on the other, darling daughters of God and so forth. Before I continue, let me say, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After All is Said and Done is my version of a news talk program. From the perspective of a Christian, (laughs) and whatever in it is good, is right, is truthful, is thanks to God Almighty and His Holy Son, Jesus, my Savior. And whatever's wrong and lacking is due to me. But back to this monstrous massacre at Santa Fe High School. Back in April, early April, a Pennsylvania school district reached a decision to arm its teachers with wooden baseball bats. Now, these wooden baseball bats are 16 inches long. It reminds me of a bat that I received long, long, long ago when I was a young boy and my father took me to Candlestick Park to watch the San Francisco Giants baseball team. We lived in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And I got a little miniature baseball bat. Now these that were issued to teachers are a little larger than that. They're along the lines of what the Bobbies in London have carried for ever. (laughs) And I'm sure that they can do some damage, absolutely. (laughs) If you club somebody from behind over the head, something like that, absolutely could do some damage and or could do some bodily damage. The problem is this, is that given an 
active shooter situation, so-called active shooter, as compared to an inactive shooter, you know, an active shooter situation, they're going to have to be very, very, very close. Close quarters combat situation within arm's length, within bat's length of that shooter to be able to do anything other than to throw the bats. Now, if enough of them have those bats and they throw them at the shooter, certainly that would be an option. But to simply arm the teachers, if you can call that arming them, with these little commemorative wooden baseball bats, which is in essence what they are, what I got was a commemorative one, and mine was probably a foot long, and certainly the The barrel of the bat was smaller than these, I think. But to arm them with those, if you can call that arming them, and to think that's going to prevent or stop incidents, I think is just a trifle, trifle naive. It is absolutely, utterly, totally incumbent on that school district and any others that do the same thing to provide expert, professional instruction in how to use those bats. That might seem like, oh, come on, how much can there be to using a bat? Because they're going to have to get at extremely close quarters to be able to really have any effect. And they need some instruction. doesn't have to be weeks and months of instruction, but they absolutely have to have bare minimum of one session of instruction in how to use these to defend themselves, to disarm these active shooters, so-called, and to defend the students. Otherwise, it is a bizarre, bizarre exercise in not just futility, but passing the buck. Speaking of capital punishment, execution, an Alabama man who was scheduled to be executed and who survived a so-called botched lethal injection is not going to have to worry about being executed hereafter. No, no, that would just be too much pain and suffering. Doyle Lee Ham, with the assistance of who knows who all, filed a civil rights action last month after the prison medical team repeatedly punctured him in the process of trying to place an IV. And then they called off the execution just before his death warrant expired. Oh, and the procedure amounted to torture. Excuse me. I've had chemotherapy, and there was only one place in my body they could manage to put an IV where where it wasn't excruciating. And I had to go back and go back and go back and go back for 
chemotherapy. Furthermore, when I have my blood tested all the time, sometimes it goes halfway smoothly, sometimes it goes smoothly, and sometimes it does not, like last time. The idea that a cold-blooded murderer manages to evade being executed because there was discomfort on trying to place an IV unit. Again, it just goes to show the absolute idiocy of how things are done in this nation and in all Western nations. This fellow committed this murder of a hotel clerk back in 1987. Hmm. So what is that, 31 years ago? (laughs) 31 years ago, and they're going to get around to executing him, but then they don't, and they're not. And meanwhile... While people are starved to death over periods of days, starved and dehydrated to death, under court orders issued by judges with state troopers at the door to prevent anybody getting in to give them water or try to administer nutrition to them, while that's going on, our states are paying for decades for the likes of this individual to keep them alive. This is such a monstrously perverse judicial system and legal system. And at the risk of offending everyone, nation. And every single solitary Western nation is guilty of the same kind of unmitigated, monstrous, immoral, shameful, disgraceful, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-human, anti-humane miscarriages of justice. It is the exact antithesis of justice to murder the innocent torturously, by starvation and dehydration, while we protect and shield the worst of the worst from being executed. That goes on not just here in the United States of America, but in every Western nation, from Scandinavia to Northern Europe, Western Europe, Southern Europe, and I expect Eastern Europe, to the wonderful royal UK, over here to Canada and the United States of America and on down through Mexico, Central America, into South America. Not to mention the rest of the British Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, and so forth. If there is a place anywhere in that sphere that I mentioned, including Israel, if there is a place 
that actually executes murderers routinely. I would certainly like to know about it. Here, our system, our judicial system, our judicial abomination and its cohort media tentacles insist on propagating these lies, these fictions concerning guilt and innocence. Oh, we have the presumption of innocence. It doesn't matter if an individual is tackled, shot, and arrested while they are engaged in murdering others with knives, with guns, with whatever. And there are carcasses, there are corpses to prove that. It doesn't matter what the circumstances, they are alleged killers. They are alleged to have done these things. They are suspects. It's one thing to say they need to be tried before they're executed. (laughs) They need to be tried and see if there are some extenuating circumstances. Were they escaping from a murderer and defending themselves? Were they attempting to keep someone from being murdered? Something else. But these fictions that we insist on, that we cling to, about that innocence and guilt is purportedly only determined by court judgments, is a complete, perverse, profane, obscene lie. There are guilty monsters that are set free, released, exonerated, found not guilty on a daily basis in this nation. And it's been that way for decade upon decade upon decade upon decade. Oh, we keep hearing about, oh, DNA evidence absolves so-and-so from something. Right? And what you will find in case after case where that has been said to be true. First, it is an extreme minority of incidents. Secondly, you will find that the evidence that was brought against them was superficial. And they should not have been convicted on that evidence. And they were convicted because of a very flawed judicial system. But our judicial system becomes worse day by day for other reasons. Our jails are clogged with individuals who are not citizens of this nation. It not only takes up resources here, but it makes the government mechanisms grind to a halt. 
and not work correctly. And then having corrupt, perverse judges and lawyers and so forth doesn't help either. Once upon a time, I'm sure I've mentioned this at some point in time or other, there was one particular woman that was nominated by a former president. And to show how far back this goes, that former president was Bill Clinton. And this woman was nominated for a lifetime gig federal judgeship in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. And she was, her next stop was supposed to be the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And this woman had engaged in such utterly, incredibly outrageous, outrageous miscarriages of justice and abuses of authority. But she was a black woman, a woman of color. And my word, how can you have a judge that's a black woman that isn't deserving to go to the Supreme Court? But uh, I think... I kind of sort of think she got stopped at that point in time from ascending further. She certainly did not make it to the Supreme Court. Pity. Pity not to have her on the highest court. But before I get to the royal festivities... One of our titans of industry here in the United States of America. None other than, pardon me, none other than the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of Starbucks, Howard Schultz. He has issued a change to Starbucks customer policy. Yes. And to quote the great man, we want our stores, that is their Starbucks, restaurants, cafes, coffee houses, or as he calls them, stores, to be the third place a warm and welcoming environment where customers can gather and connect. Any customer is welcome to use Starbucks spaces, including our restrooms, cafes, and patios, regardless of whether they make a purchase, end quote. So let me go back over that for a moment. He says, we want our stores to be the third place. He doesn't really make that clear, but he means other than work and home. Work, home, and Starbucks, as compared to other places (laughs) you might go, right? But he wants it to be a warm and welcoming environment where customers, customers, he calls them, can gather and connect. Any customer is welcome to use Starbucks spaces regardless whether they make a purchase. So every person that comes into a Starbucks store, as he calls it, is a customer. 
whether they are there to purchase anything or not. They, by dint of being within a Starbucks, are a customer. They are defined as being a customer. If you come into a Starbucks to commit armed robbery, you're a customer. Right? If you come in to clean the Starbucks, you're a customer. Any person that happens into the Starbucks, they need to use the restroom. I need a restroom. Come on in, customer. Now, hey, I don't care if he wants to run his operation that way. That's okay with me. But to redefine customer as meaning a warm body inside of his establishment or a cold body that is still breathing... That's a customer. Fascinating. I mean, again, the, the new speak, the new think. Honesty has absolutely gone out the window, gone out the door. And this is just a political ploy by him to keep Starbucks from being ravaged by black activism against a couple men of color being arrested when they refused to leave a Starbucks in Philadelphia, I believe. And here the CEO is intimidated and coerced into doing this. I mean, well, he's a leftist. He's an absolute leftist, as are so many in corporate America, but still He's cowed and intimidated into doing this. Oh, boy. Well, now he'll get, he'll get all this great business from all these customers. Hmm? I mean, really, you know, I think they need to put advertisements outside of the Starbucks and say, street people, welcome. Homeless people, come on in. It's just going to make it so inviting. It will be so warm and welcoming and inviting for all of their paying customers, right? Uh, I just, oh my, incredible. But now to the royal festivities. Now, I did watch a program or other about the coming royal festivities. But that was it. And then with regard to the actual wedding... I tuned in at one point and I had the television on for three minutes, two minutes, something like that. But to my amazement, <laughs> astonishment, I'm not going to say horror because I don't care what they do, but to my amazement, there was shouting, and I mean much louder than anything I do here on this program. There was absolute out-and-out out shouting. And it was the African-American bishop who was there to preside over the service. Yes. And it was quite something. The most reverend Michael Curry. Now, I always abhor the use of the term reverend. That word, that term is used one 
time in the Bible. One time to refer to God Almighty. But the most, he's not only the reverend, he's the most reverend. Michael Curry, Chicago-born, must be one of Obama's buddies of the Episcopal Church. Bishop Curry, quote, in the great tradition of black preachers, <laughs> delivered a loose improvisational sermon that began as a meandering discourse, but built to a passionate shouting climax. It's not just me saying he was shouting. This is saying he was shouting. A built to a passionate shouting climax, name-checking Martin Luther King Jr., or name-dropping is the way I would put it, and slave spirituals along the way, end quote. Yes, in that great tradition of black preachers, he delivered a loose improvisational sermon that began as a meandering discourse and ended with shouting and so on and so forth. Well, again, I tuned in at exactly the right time. I was appalled. I know what a marriage is supposed to be. I know what a wedding ceremony is supposed to be. I also know what preaching is supposed to be and what a church service is supposed to be. And so-called black churches in the United States of America, unfortunately, so many of them are represented by this sort. But so many other churches are, too. So many whether they're charismatic or Presbyterian or whatever, so many others are represented by people who are not called by God to be ministers, hireling ministers, if you will, the kinds of priests that there were so many of back in the day in Israel, and whose spoutings are not from God or from the Bible, or if they're from the Bible, they're twisted and convoluted and contorted and perverted and self-serving, but that do not truly represent God, do not honor God, glorify God. And this wedding service was such, my nobody will dare say it, but it was such a debacle. I have never su seen such an unbelievable mess of an excuse of a wedding for that you know again this little bit that i saw since when do you have a sermon in a wedding you have sharing of scriptures pertaining to marriage and the sanctity of marriage but a sermon and a carnal black sermon for all you people who you know, are thinking, gee, this is just so great. A new era dawns. Meghan Markle, my word, it is just high time that the royal family of Britain got with it and so forth. As I've mentioned time and time and time again, uh, my regard for the British royal family is very low. And I loathe, <laughs> loathe the agenda of Prince Philip, which is a murderous world-destroying, people-destroying agenda, and have had no respect for dear Charles forever. But, and <laughs> not high regard for the others. But now, guess what? Meghan Markle hasn't just joined the family. She's going to take over. 
She is absolutely going to take over. She was totally in charge of this wedding. You go back to Diana's wedding when Diana was just a teenage girl. She was along for the ride. Meghan Markle took the reins. Not Harry, Meghan. And Meghan and Harry and the Fab Four are going to change things for the worse. And they will be political activists for evil, for the sodomite agenda and so forth. Just a thing of beauty. And they will be. <laughs> if, they, if they are permitted to be, they will be involved in the new world power, the one world regime that this world will suffer under. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you.